episode of Make Defense Craig and my name is Chris Fasser, aka Chris Fasser. Hey now! Thank you so much for joining me. Today's guest is Michael Lombardi, former NFL executive and current broadcaster, as well as author of the book Gridiron Genius. We go through a myriad of topics in football, from scouting your own players to breaking down opponents. It's a little different than our normal episodes, but nonetheless, it was a fantastic conversation with Mr. Lombardi talking about some of his experience over his 35 years in football. This will be the last full episode of the season slash calendar year. We'll have a little bonus something something coming out soon. I'm looking forward to putting together for you to put a bow in the last 18 months of the Make Defense Great Again podcast as we go into 2021. Speaking of podcasts, coming soon, the almost titled but not quite yet official titled Offensive podcast will be coming out in 2021. I've already got a myriad of guests lined up from all different backgrounds, and I'm really looking forward to starting that podcast up and helping out the uh, enemy. Well, they won't be the enemy for very much longer. Right now, on this space, are the enemy. Then when I switch over to the other podcast, I put my sweater vest on, my visor, and then I'm one of the good guys. Housekeeping notes: Follow me on Twitter at Coach Vast and the show's account at MDGA Podcast. Also follow Michael Lombardi at M Lombardi NFL. As I mentioned at the beginning, check out the new store, coachvast.com slash store. Also, don't forget to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash coachvast. The best damn educational football product out there. Whether you want to listen to some bonus pods, watch some webinars, read some notes from clinics, and see some playbook drawings, or you want to watch film, there's a tier for everybody. Go ahead again, patreon.com slash coachvast. As I previously mentioned, my Sarah film is up. So you can see a high school defense functioning at a high level against a lot of different offenses. We played pretty much everything you could imagine, minus the side saddle T slash horsefly offense. So check that out. Also coming up, you'll hear about the new Coach Tube course, Defending the Wing T Offense. Check out the redesigned website, CoachRass.com. There you'll find a consulting tab if you want to reach out and go over your defense this year, want to book some sessions. I've been working with a few guys who were breaking down their defense from 2020 and how they can get better a really fun exercise and if there's anything else you want to talk to me about reach out and i'd be happy to discuss that with you also check out the show notes for the link to huddle highlights and be on the lookout next month for another blog using the beta analysis tool lastly make sure you subscribe to the show rate and review it helps coaches find the show and that's all i've got let's hear michael lombardi i hope you have a happy holiday a happy new year and i will see you at the end of the show Let's get into it, man. My guest today has been a permanent fixture in football for the last four decades. He is currently a writer for The Athletic and also a co-host of the GM Shuffle podcast with The Athletic. He co-hosts a Saturday morning sports betting program on SiriusXM for the Vegas Stats and Information Network, as well as the Hammerdown podcast with Pat McAfee. He has an NFL career spanning over 30 years, serving as a general manager, vice president, senior personnel executive, director of pro and player personnel, as well as a scout for the Browns, Raiders, Eagles, and 49ers. His last stop in the league was as an assistant to the coaching staff for the New England Patriots, reuniting with the best coach in NFL history, Bill Belichick, who once called my guest one of the smartest people he's ever worked with. He won three Super Bowls during his time in the NFL and started his career in football as the recruiting coordinator for UNLV after finishing his playing career at Hofstra, where he was a defensive guy at heart playing D-line and long snapper for the former Flying Dutchman. He has worked for the NFL Network, ESPN, 
CBS, Showtime, and Fox Sports, and a writer for NFL.com. His book, Gridiron Genius, A Masterclass in Winning Championships and Building Dynasties in the NFL, was published in September of 2018 and is one of my favorite football books ever. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Michael Lombardi. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me. Well, Coach, uh, well, I, I'm going to call you Coach a lot because I'm used to talking to to coaches. So, but your uh, football, <laughs> your 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 football book, Gridiron Genius. You know, we talked during the pre-interview. It's it's better than most of the coaches coaching books that I've read, and has more deep information on coaching than than most of the books I've read. Maybe all the books that I've read by coaches, and I was just blown away with your experience and your stories. I mean. Just your personal narrative, where you came from, your experiences working with Al Davis, Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, etc. It's fantastic. And what I was really struck by, especially in today's age, I don't want to get into like the PC police wars and all that stuff, but you're very honest in the book. And I really it was really refreshing and and, and especially the shout out to the the RG3 story. But you know, was that hard for you to do still being in the business? You know, a lot of guys they write books after they retire, they leave politics, or they leave corporate America. But you read, you wrote a pretty earnest assessment of a lot of things and a lot of people, and you're still in that business. Was that difficult for you to do? I mean. No, it was empowering because, you know, the NFL is, most people think the NFL is, Walsh used to say to me, this is not the league of the best and the brightest. And for me, it was empowering to write that because it was able to show people you know, what you knew, what you've learned, kind of uh, give you give a self uh, analysis of your own um, career and not have to have somebody else's opinion of it. So yeah. for me, it's kind of uh, very therapeutic. It's kind of given me a sense of freedom and, uh, you know, and, and allowing it to move forward because I can't really, I used to have to defend things or, you know, we get into subjects and, you know, and it was, he said, she said, and once I wrote the book and wrote it from my perspective and my honesty that came through it, it was therapeutic and invigorating to the point to where I, I feel very comfortable in my own skin. That's great. And you could tell there were some parts of the book where you were um, getting some things off your chest that you've been wanting to say for a while. <laughs> and I've appreciated that. Yeah, because especially, you know, do you know how many times I've read in, it, when other people, you know, when other people talk about their experience in Cleveland and how they worked for Bill Belichick, but they never mentioned that they actually really worked for me? You know, do you know how many <laughs> really, you know, it's like, and not that I wanted them to give me credit for it, but, you know, like, Mike Tannenbaum, you know, he he writes, he worked for Belichick. Shit, he never saw Belichick when he was an intern. He never saw Belichick five minutes, you know, and, and when he Cleveland. So, you know, I hired him. I gave him a job that ended up being a cap analyst before anybody even knew what a cap analyst was. And, you know, and so for me, it was like, seriously, you when did you work for Belichick? I kind of missed that, you know? So I, I and so it was really morally therapeutic than that. I love that, man. You know, I, I'm in a in a business in a weird space where, you know, I'm followed by coaches, mostly mostly coaches, some super fans, uh, NFL super fans, rather, not super fans of me. But, um, you know, and so I'm not tied to a corporation. 
I mentioned, you know, I talked to you a little bit about before this, like, yeah, I have some sponsors, but like, this isn't, you know, this isn't the coach fast happy hour, you know, sponsored by X company that like hires me, like I'm my own gun. And, you know, I've said some things on here and people are like, wow, I can't believe you said that. And it's like, well, nobody pays me enough to tell me what I can't say. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's, and I love that. I love that. It's so refreshing. And, 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 and I mean, I was fan as a fan, it's a great perspective to see because I, we know it all goes on behind the scenes and you know how coaches are like, Oh, you know, that this is the greatest coach in sliced bread. And then they leave the press conference and they're like, that guy sucks, you know, whatever. But so it was great to see like the actual other side of it. But I want to talk some scheme with you and, and some game planning and some of the real getting into the real weeds here. You've worked with some of the best and not some of the best. I mean, you've worked with the best, I mean, when you think Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, I mean, I don't know where you go besides that. You sat in a lot of meetings. You were witness that, you know, you talk about the carpool karaoke with James Corden getting a ride down El Camino with Bill Walsh, which I used to live off El Camino multiple times. So that, that, that image was painted very vividly for me. But, you know, you saw a lot of game plans. You observed a lot of things. What was what stands out in your mind as the single most innovative or ingenious single game plan that you witnessed where the team was just overmatched and and a coach came up with something that gave them a cutting edge and they shocked the other team and won? What was does anything jump to mind? I mean, we played Dallas in 94 uh, and, you know, Dallas is the best team in football. And we were able to beat them on their own field. You know, they end up being six inches short in the game. But I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, having been around Coach Belichick, especially the second time in New England, you know, where his ability to set up the game plan and how the game is going to go and how the game needs to be played. I think, you know, we this is a coaching podcast and I think it's really kind of great, but you know, coaches, I think sometimes get so far in the forest, they can't see the trees Yep. and great coaches really can see players and plays. Mm-hmm. And when you can see players and plays, then you have a distinctive advantage over the competition. And, you know, it's like, I say this all the time. I mean, if you're getting ready to play the Kansas city chiefs, I mean, Travis Kelsey's not a lot. And, right. and, 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 you know, and uh, Tyree kills, not an X or a Z. I mean, they're unique players. So you can't treat them like an X or a Z or a Y, mm-hmm. you know, and if you don't recognize that, like some teams have done, you're going to get your ass kicked. So it doesn't matter whether you want to play quarters to them, whether you want to play cover seven to them, whether you want to play cover eight, whether you want to play t- t- cover 55, whatever you want to play. Right. If you, how to take a player out of a game and not take an X out of the game or a Y, then, you know, you're just wasting your time and you never can really come up with a good game plan. Great coaches have to be able to evaluate talent on a high level. Absolutely. And I actually have some questions on that. I know that's your, that's your expertise. And I want to get into that in a little bit, but let's talk about that Dallas game. So this you're at the Browns. Uh, this is when the Cowboys had Aikman, Smith, Irvin, Harper, and Novacek, right there. And the moose yep. playing fullback. Do you remember any particulars of the game plan? I, I it's in the book, but by the way, the book gridiron genius is fantastic. I'll talk about it a lot during this 
so good. I bought it twice and read it twice. But do you remember any of the particulars of, I know that was the, the plan was to eliminate chunk plays and, and things, but do you remember any of the particulars of the coverages or the fronts? Because I know I'm going to get that question as soon as this goes there. Well, what they do, coach, what they do? Well, I mean, what we knew we needed to do is we knew we needed to be able to run the ball quickly because they played cover seven, but they're cover seven. Remember, when Jimmy Johnson came in the league, everybody said he was a college coach right. and the quarter coverage wouldn't work in, in college. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't work in pro, you know? And so we knew we had to be able to get into the game and be able to run the ball with quick hitting runs that could get downhill and take advantage of their lack of, uh, not their lack of power, because they were powerful. They were big. The only people that were small on the field for them were the linebackers. And actually, their linebackers helped us really, uh, you know, we understood how to, uh, how to, we changed our grading system on linebackers after the game. But what we really wanted to do was we knew we needed to make plays quickly down the field. We knew we needed to control the pace of the game. And we knew that we needed to be able to keep them from having to make big plays, you know, and I, and I think we, we were going to be, we knew it was going to be hard in third down. I mean, they ended up 64% in the game on third down, but the longest play of the day was, you know, I think the longest play of the game was Emmett Smith had a 26 yard run mm-hmm. and that was it. Irvin's Irvin had an 18 yard run. I think Emmett Smith, his longest play was 10 yards. And, you know, we were able to limit Novacek. We felt like, you know, that, that you had to eliminate, you had to take Alvin Harper out of the game, you know, you couldn't let, you couldn't let, it's a little bit like playing Kansas City, right? You play Kansas City, you got to use three players to take away Kelsey and Hill. You can't, and, and you can't use a linebacker and a safety. You got to use two corners, a corner in the face of Hill and, a, and, a, and someone over the top. Mm-hmm. And then you got to use big guy who can use quickness and skill. You may not have this player, to put over Kelsey, but it takes three to take away two. Right. And we felt like if we could play this game where we could take away and limit, I mean, Aikman threw 36 times for 188 yards in the game. And we sacked them twice with a really good offensive line and we picked them off twice. So we knew that we had to be able to play that. And, you know, and we knew we could play in the kicking game. We knew we could control, we could match them in the kicking game, which very few teams could do. Right. Right. Very few teams to do that and so that, that was just how bill set up the game plan and in the second half we were able to dominate the third quarter and we ended up holding the ball for almost 16 minutes in the second half and that, that ultimately we allowed us to have the ball 32 36 in the game and you know that was it it's amazing you remember all those numbers for a game that was played over 25 years ago coach belichick said in the forward you had a near photographic memory and damn if that ain't true, man, you <laughs> live it. Right. And so, and part of it was the game plan. We had to be able to, we had to be able to, this is another thing about players and plays. We had to be able to, to uh, limit possessions. You know, no one really pays attention to the, pos- how many, pos- how many possessions do you want to have in this game? Like, how do you limit possessions? You know, and we knew that they were so good on third down you know, we knew that it was going to be hard for us to match him on third down, but we also knew we could, we could win on third down. There was throws we could make as long as we could avoid negative plays, as long as we could avoid penalties, penalties. And we only really had three penalties in the whole game for 15 wow. yards. Wow. 
I want to go find this game now. Too bad Game Pass only goes back to 2009. It's probably video somewhere. I'm sure you could watch it on YouTube somewhere. Novacek fell on the one-inch line. That's and we incredible. won the game there. Well, I'm sure the listeners will, will, uh, will find it. I had Wade Phillips on, and we talked for like two, almost three hours, his last podcast, and he said the most incredible play he'd seen, our defense he coached, was J.J. Watt made a play. Basically, he was in the strong side B-gap, and he stunned it inside. He saw the formation, stunned it inside, and made a TFL on lead week. I mean, not zone week, like country-ass downhill lead week for negative four yards. And within, like, two hours of the release of the podcast, somebody dug up the play, like, somehow found the play, and I sent it to Coach Phillips, and he's like, yeah, that's the play. I'm like, these these guys, these internet sleuths guys, are they're insane. They love it. So you talk about Belichick a lot in the book, and, and, and to my mind, his best attribute to solve offensive problems is he just kind of goes by Occam's razor. He finds the simplest solution, covers the most ground, taking away what they do best. How? What's his process for doing that? Is there a specific formula or a specific process, or is it through osmosis, just watching the film? Uh, it kind of comes to him. Is he is he doing hit charts by hand? Like, how does he get to that that process? or get through that process rather. You know, I think he understands the, so he, he understands the defense from the origins of how the defense was created. You know, he understands how the offense evolved and he understands the play caller and the play designer. Those are all what he's trying to come up with. It's very similar to playing chess, right? You know, you kind of have a feel for the guy you play chess against and you got to know what, what you're doing. So, but he starts with basically breaking down the players and then how the players fit in the scheme. And then his knowledge of football is so incredible on every level, offense, defense, and the kicking game that he can watch either side of the ball and truly understand what he's seeing on the tape. You know, so I tell this to all coaches, I think if you want to be a great offensive coach, if you're a high school coach and you want to be a great offensive coach, then you should spend from January 1st until June the 1st studying defensive tape. Amen. Really understand defense. And then that, but, but act as if you're coaching the defensive back. And so, uh, you know, and so, yeah. And so, he just is able to, so he breaks the team down and he understands how the team was built. He tries to get into the mind of the, the play caller on both sides. And then once he does that, you know, he understands who they want to throw the ball to, who, you know, who they really, what they're, what they're trying to do and their process for how they want to attack. Yeah. And that's, that's so important. And don't learn offense. You know, I, as a defensive coach, you know, I've coached offense before, but as a defensive coach, what you, you said is uh, is obviously, it's I agree, but what you said about learn it from their perspective. Don't study offenses through a defensive lens. Well, the first thing I do is I go by, you know, we played a single wing team, or we played a shotgun double wing team, so it's, it's kind of basically balanced single wing. The first thing I went and did is I found the guy who created the offense. He was selling his playbook. I went and bought it and I studied it as if I could run it at a JV level or varsity, you know, try to get to varsity level. This is the first thing I did. And because it, out in Northern California, you see so many different types of offense. I mean, we saw split veer, single wing, 
Wingty Wingty option, I formation, Tony Franklin, uh, How Mummy, Air Raid. We saw it all in one year. And you got to learn those offenses. What I would do is I'd, I'd take a month. What you basically said, I'd figure out the top six teams we needed to beat. And I would, over the course of the month, I would learn, try to learn the offense from their perspective. I think that's, that's so big. So one thing uh, I had Dean Pease on about a month ago, and it actually made national news, our little old podcast, because he said on the podcast that when he was the defensive coordinator, that Belichick only spent 30 minutes with the defense a week. And I know this was before your time getting there, but he basically just followed Brady around or like hung out with Brady and taught Brady the opposing defense through his eyes, kind of to your point. Now, you know, Coach Pease obviously said, I don't know what happened after that, how it changed. I'm sure as he got younger coordinators with less experience, he was more involved. But did you see the same thing when you were there with the Patriots or was he way more involved in the defensive side of the ball? Well, no, I, I think, you know, I, I think what he says to the coordinator on defense is here's the way I see the game. Here's what I want. And then remember, he's watching practice. So he, right. he can see that quality control of what he's seeing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the entire staff watches practice at night. And so he can easily say to the staff, look, you know, Matt, I don't want to run this. I don't like this. What are we going to do here? Why would we do that? What are we thinking about here? You know, what are we telling the will on this play? And then yeah. offensively, we tried it. on Mondays, he would try to make sure that the that Brady and the quarterbacks, you know, understood what they were getting and what they were seeing. And he would literally write up every defensive back of the opponent team so that Brady would understand that, look, if we're going to go play against this team and here's what, you know, here's the way he plays, here's his weakness. He has trouble with these routes, whatever it is, you know, and then he has a team made a tape of every player so that they could watch it together. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's he, and then he did the same thing in the kick game. He's involved in every area, you know? Right. Uh, so yeah, he's a head coach. I mean, that's what he's doing. And then he's watching the practice and he's like, look, I don't, you know, I don't like this. I love this. And let's make sure we call this early in the game. Let's not call this until the second half. I think they're going to have some trouble with this look. Let's do this. I mean, that's what head coaches do. They're the chief figure out. So they got to figure out how they want to play the game, how they want to execute and what the game plan is. Like it, it doesn't do you any good to be a head coach and you show up on Sunday and you're running, sh- and you're running the shit you don't want to run. Right. You know, it's like okay, I'm Gruden go fire Paul Gunther this week. Was he not at the games? What was Gunther doing that he didn't want? Yeah. You know, why didn't he? Tell Gunther, why wouldn't he have told Gunther that you know I don't want to run cover seven against this front or I don't want to do this? You know, clearly he didn't because he was probably coaching offensive football. Knowing Gruden, <laughs> Gruden's a you know is a hundred million dollar offensive coordinator. I mean, that's what he does. So, you know, he don't worry. He lets the defensive coach his coach. He lets the special teams guy do his thing. So, you know, I, I just think to me, we've lost the head coach and, and because we're not training people to be head coaches, we have fewer and fewer of them. Yeah. That's, it's funny when guys that are true head coaches, the guys that see the big picture or they started as a, as a, defensive coach and they moved to offense and then or they skipped the coordinator step. It's almost like everybody kind of gasps now. Like, well, 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 wait a minute. Well, he wasn't a coordinator before. It's like, well, he's not a coordinator now. <laughs> he's still, you know, he's, he's, he's leading the whole team. 
I'm excited to introduce Coach Vast Defense, a comprehensive out-of-the-box defensive system with everything you need to coordinate a top-tier defense coming in early 2025. The system is a one-stop shop and comes with a complete, robust defensive scheme with tools to get into any structure, including even, odd, mint tight, bear, stack, three high, and more. It comes with an NFL-level playbook with run fits and route matches, narrated install videos with a schedule for implementation, and a library of answers for every offense you will see, including the spread 11 personnel offense du jour, the air raid, the Bryles offense, option schemes including the flex bone, the wing tee, three back, and much more. It also comes with a drill and game film library, live in-season game planning sessions, templates to help you organize practice, opponent breakdown, and tools to make you a better play caller. Whether you're new to coordinating or a grizzled vet looking for new ideas, this system will have something for everyone. If you want to see all the details of the system, visit coachfastdefense.com and make sure to sign up for the mailing list to get updates and invitations to webinars to have your say in the system's creation so all of your coaching needs are met. Again, go to coachfastdefense.com, check out the details, and sign up for the mailing list. This past season, coaches across the country used CoachPad to be more efficient with their scout cards for prep on the weekends and on the practice field with their scout team. Whether you're using a computer program to create your scout cards or drawing them by hand, the CoachPad is for you. Some of the features coaches enjoyed the most this past season was never printing paper or stuffing a binder, the scout team being able to see their cards clearly, even in the bright sun, and using the CoachPad on game day to sync diagrams from the press box to the sideline. This offseason, get yours at thecoachpad.com and get your program ready for next season. Again, that is thecoachpad.com. You know, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, and I've wrote ex- uh, extensively about this and actually helped me win a state championship game. And we played one double jersey number. It's, I, I mean, I love that coverage, one double, whatever people call it. You know, you mentioned uh, doubling, uh, you know, Kelsey and Hill. I know that in the 2018 playoffs, the Patriots did a lot of that, did one double ten. And some one double eighty seven. They actually, and a lot of teams do this concept, but they they actually have plans to do it for two guys in one game plan, which to me is is a little difficult because your brackets change by like you said, who's the receiver with Hill? You want somebody in his face, and you want a guy over the top, so you probably want somebody in his face with inside leverage with a safety playing like halves coverage, but with a guy like Kelsey, you might want to in out bracket him or whatever. So getting those brackets, depending, you know, he may be in a different position, but how you align your brackets change. And I think high school, that might be a little difficult. In fact, I've only seen one college do it. And that was one game Saban in the 18. Oh God. The, when they played Oklahoma in the, in the playoffs, he, he doubled Hollywood Brown and CD lamb. He had different, and they had different brackets for each guy. And so I think it's a, it's a fantastic concept. I've been, I've been praising it. Did you guys do that a lot when you were uh, with the Pats? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, it depends on who you're playing. Like, you can't bracket Tyreek Hill. He'll run through the bracket. Right, You know, exactly. who, has, who has him left, but who has him deep? It's like Randy Moss. I mean, it's like, seriously, it's like blitzes from depth against Peyton Manning. Like, it looks good on a blackboard, but by the time that the guy gets from depth to get to Manning, Manning, the ball's out, and, and they're moving the chains. Right. So, you know, it all depends on the player how you want to handle it, you know, and a guy like Kelsey who could still get it down the field, you know, if you bracket him, who's got him on top, you, you got to make sure you got him somewhere. And, and, and based on situational football too, you know, and how, where he's aligned. I mean, Andy does such a good job of being able, he knows 
those two guys are probably going to get taken away. So he constantly moves them away. That's why Hill's in the slot so much. That's why Kelsey's away from the three by one so that, that it becomes cleaner for the quarterback to a see the coverage and B, you know, uh, understand what the defense is trying to do because, you know, remember Einstein has five levels of intelligence, you know, and the, the first level is simple, you know, like that's the most intelligent person is the one who can take a complex some a complex system and make it simple, and that's what Andy Reid does. We try to make it we try to become geniuses, which is the second level, and we end up screwing it up. Guilty as charged. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there, and I like I said, I think that's what makes Bill good. And it's funny looking back on my own career, the games the games that I, our defenses did the best were system-based high school offense, swing T double wing flex bone. I know it's also a college offense, but things where you bet you were, you were handcuffed. Like you're not going to blitz the double wing there and foot to foot splits. There's no point of it blitzing inside. They will get picked off and it's like a windshield wiper. They just cave you down. And when, and some of our worst performances where, where we underperformed was against pro style teams or, or teams where you, you, you could be more creative, quote unquote. And I think sometimes we're our own worst enemies. And that's why, you know, you contrast, you contrast Saban and Belichick and how they approach things. And it made me chuckle because it's so true. I mean, you, there's different ways to do things. And, you know, I think it's important now in your book, you say games were won or lost in the final four minutes of the first half. Uh, Do you believe that holds true at lower levels? Do you think that extrapolates down or do you think that there's differences in the games that that wouldn't necessarily 100% translate? Well, I, I think, okay, the way I could answer that the best way is if two amateurs play chess, mm-hmm. you know, who has, who has the white pieces and who has the, the black pieces really doesn't matter. Right. 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 When grandmasters play chess, who has white should win. Mm-hmm. So the middle eight to me is really a chess equation. It's who controls the middle eight is who, who ends up getting the white pieces. And so when teams are even, that's kind of how it manifests itself, not to dismiss high school level, but in the high school level, when the game is, is kind of on an even level, so to speak, it doesn't really matter who kicks off and who does it. And it doesn't matter who starts the second half and who does, you know, but in pro football and a grandmaster, you know, who controls the middle eight is really ends up, ends up winning the game. Because remember, if you start it, the, the object of football is to play from in front. That's why what drives me crazy is all these people talk about the West coast offense. We want to smash seven curl, you know, 20 bingo cross, all this shit. When in reality, the West Coast offense has never been about the plays. It's always been about we are going to score early in the game by throwing the football, and then we're going to have a complementary defense that can rush the passer and create turnovers, and then we are going to be able to run the ball to finish the game. That's the, that's the definition of West Coast offense. That's what Walsh believed the West Coast offense was. Now, how he got there, the procedures to get there was we're going to have long handoffs. And so he designed long handoffs because he, you know, but the, the philosophy was that. And so, you know, his rush, his running attempts, his rushing attempts 
in the first quarter were probably not very high because he knew to score, you had to throw the ball. It was not about establishing the run. It was about establishing the lead. That's right. what Bill was different than everybody else. And so, you know, and, and, and then he acted accordingly. And I, and I think that that's, we lose sight of that. And so when you play a grandmaster in chess and you have the white pieces, it, you, unless you make a mistake, the game should end up, you either win or a draw. And if you end up with, if you kick off, and you basically are the black pieces by kicking off, if you control the middle eight, then you end up getting the white pieces back in the middle of the game, and then you should win the game. Absolutely. Now, one question I have here is, do you think, because a lot of defensive coordinators, they don't want to give the opponent momentum, quote-unquote, going into half, right? Understood. Do you think that coaches are too conservative when you're playing defense at the end of the first half in the sense that, it's better to be if you know you can score points. If if scoring points is not if you're you know if you're a ground and pound offense that doesn't have a great two minute offense. Obviously, this is a dumb question, but if you feel confident in your offense, do you tell that DC, hey, give me the ball back with time? I don't care if it's zero points or seven points, because I would rather get the ball back and score at the end and be able to get the ball coming out the second half. Because even if they score and we score and then we score again, we're still net seven rather than you bleed slow, bleed slow, bleed slow. They score with three seconds left, and now you have to come out in the first half and score to make it just a net gain of zero. Do you think that defensive coordinators should be more aggressive at about the four-minute mark instead of trying to keep the ball, you know, like be soft where the the opposing, the opposing offense can really kind of just hold on and control the tempo? I think you should be able to understand what team's objectives are in the four-minute. I think you should really know what they are. I mean, you know, it's like when when the offense is backed up, what's their objective? Like what, they're going to run fullback in the flat. They're going to fullback belly. They may throw a nine route, right? You know their objectives. You take those three plays away, you're liable to get the ball back and kick a field goal. Right. So when they go for a minute, like usually what's their objective in four minutes? Where are they going to go with the football? And then you plot your defense accordingly, right. you know? And I always believe that if, if, if you – if you do that, you have to have something different that you're not, that you haven't showed them in the first quarter. I wish I did that. I was so impatient, <laughs> Mike, like I've tried that in games and I'm too, I'm too impetuous. I'm, I'm not, I'm not patient enough. I've tried it, man. And I know some other guys that have, I need to do better than that on that holding it. Yeah. We all, because you know, you get in a situation where I got to get this stop. I got to try it. You know, I got to do it. Well, you know, I mean, you know, you got to you got to really pick your time and, and you got to get control of it. You know, I think a lot of I think your question really centers on who's in control of the game and who's in the lead. I, I, I really think the idea to let them score so we can score, it's is a fallacy. Right. I, I think you have to really I think your job as a head coach at that four minute mark when the other team has the ball is who's in control and who's in the lead. Right. And if that's your team, then play your style, take away what they want to do in four minutes and then play. You know, if, if you're, if they're in control and they're in the lead, you're in trouble. You better make a play. You got to figure something out. Yeah. You know, you got the tie, you know, I mean, Miami tried that this weekend, you know, they're down Miami's up 30, uh, up 10, nothing, but never was Miami ever. Even when they were up 10 to nothing, they were never in control of the game. Right. They never 
offense couldn't get control of it. So I, I think this, if you're a defensive coach and I'm a head coach, I got to be good on defense because it's the only way I can get control of the game is through my defense. Right. That's the only, I can't get control of the game. I mean, it gives Washington such an advantage this year because Washington as shitty as they are on offense and God knows they're shitty that they can at least get control of the game with their defense. So when they have to punt, they're not down seven, nothing. If they have to punt again, they're not down 10, nothing. If they have to punt again, they're not down 17 to nothing. The game over. Mm-hmm. Now they that's happened Pittsburgh, but for the most part, they can get control of the game. Right. Well, my mentor used to say when you're on the road, pack your defense and your kicking game, because the elements can, especially in high school, the elements can take your offense out the crowd, all of that stuff. You know, it's like you've talked about extensively in the book, offense is about timing and rhythm. And it's a lot easier to throw those things off, especially at a lower level where you're dealing with 17 year old kids. And I think the de- the elements and I'm not, t- I know how you feel about running in the snow. I'm not saying that I'm just saying like quarterback has a, you know, has a couple bad series. The whole thing can sputter, you know, where on defense, I think there's more of a, more of a safety net there. I think when you're in those elements and you're in an unfamiliar environment, um, especially in high school where your only big road trip is at the finals. You know what I mean? Like you play in the same town, play across town. And then all of a sudden, Oh, you want to go to a state championship? We got to go four hours down the road into a hostile environment. Well, they're not used to it. You know, at least in college and the pros, you get warmed up for that. You know, and you're dealing with 17, 18 year old kids, but um, and I, and I, I'm not advising letting teams score. I just, I think I know that I've carried this mindset and reading your book. I was like, you know, I think I wasn't aggressive enough in two minutes, not necessarily two minutes, but about the four minute mark. I was so worried about giving up a score that I ended up giving up the score with no time for the offense to get the ball back. And had I been a little bit more aggressive, I probably could have prevented a score or if they scored, gave the offense time to get back. Now, one question I got to ask you. I know you, you don't have a lot of time, but one question I have to ask you, you have a lot of, you have knowledge of a lot of coaches, white whale, which is red too. It is, it's almost taken a mythical status in football and understanding of it. And you got to be in the driver's seat and, and see when it was created and how it was created. Would you be able to take us through the rules of red Two position by position? No. No chance. Okay. No chance. I just, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, all right. I mean, red two is way too complicated and it's way too complicated for any high school coach to run way too complicated. It's pattern distribution. It's really based on, it was based on, we took it from the run and shoot back in the day. Nick took it from the run and shoot and, and converted into a red zone. It's based on, it, it's way too complicated in the sense of the depth of the route, where the route distribution is, who carries, who does it, you know, who cuts it, who plays off of it. It would be, it would really hurt a team to run that mm-hmm. in high school without a lot of reps for it. Right. I mean, we, we played, we played it against Houston when they were the Oilers mm-hmm. and we played it when they were the Oilers and, you know, we played it out in the field because Nick, see, Nick's so pragmatic that, you know, Nick figured out that no matter how many guys you put in the box, um, they were only going to block five. Mm. You know, so, he, so why put six in the box to play the run? They were only blocking five anyway. 
and they would run the ball away from the sixth guy, right. which then gave you a defender to play red, to play two, and then that's how red two kind of started. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I know some guys that run it, and and some of us are dumb enough to try. I mean, we ran. You know, I know guys that run Saban's entire cover seven package, the switch bracket mod, all all of it. Like it's some of these guys do in the time they get like a lot of high school guys. I know like the other top end, they get more time than the colleges and sound about the pros, but definitely the colleges. So we definitely try and last question for you uh, before I say goodbye. You spent time in, in, in the player personnel department in the NFL with some of the best minds in all of football. You've learned to evaluate players for the draft. Um, you've honed your craft. You've created a template that a lot of NFL teams use to this day. And, and it's whether it's based on measurables or tests and, and, and a mix of things. My question to you is, is there something that high school coaches or even college coaches, smaller college coaches, is there something we're missing when evaluating our own kids? I know that you know, certain drills can translate to positions and, uh, you know, sometimes things can be disqualifiers. Is there a test or an evaluation piece that's not just the eye, like, oh, that guy looks like he's good, but some sort of timed mechanism or that can translate into evaluating your own football team to slot players and roles that maybe coaches are overlooking, like, Okay, if this guy has a great three cone, you should look at him here at these positions. Maybe something you think about, thinking outside the box a little bit. Is there any kind of translation in that world that we should be looking at? Uh, you know, the hardest thing to do with evaluate your own players is understand the level of comp, right? right. Is to understand that that's the biggest challenge. Is you know, for me to answer that for a high school program, it's hard because I don't know the level of comp of that high school. You know, so for me, it's a challenge. And you know, I think I think ultimately you got to have standards, you know, and, and then you measure that player up to the standards, you know, and, and you measure him based on that and try to be as objective as you possibly can. Like, is this guy, could this guy play for somebody else? I mean, let, let's take Baker Mayfield, you know, can Baker Mayfield, how much better is Baker Mayfield than Case Keenum? Now to the most, the average fan on the street, they'd say, Oh, that's not even close. Right. If you understand football, it's probably a little closer than you think it is. Right. But the question is, you got to quantify it. Is it 20 million close? Is it 15 million close? Is it 10 million close? Is it five? What is it? You know, what's the fallacy of the false alternative? If we let him go, what does it cost us to replace him? How do we replace? So those problems are always, whether it's pro or high school, they're the same. It really comes down to just evaluating your player across the platform that you play in. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, now, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I had uh, one 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 last thing I had a question for you. Um, so I, I worked for some guys that work for Al Davis, and, I, and we haven't really mentioned him much except for the intro. And I know there's some classic Al Davis stories. One of my favorites, I was told, was there was a receivers coach at the Raiders. I don't know his name. That was kind of a a timid soul. And I don't know exactly even when this was, but he was he was – very nervous about Mr. Davis and he was afraid he was going to be yelled at. And so what they did was, I guess, Mr. Davis had a very distinct cologne. And what they did as a prank is they, they, they uh, took a rag or a handkerchief and soaked it, got his cologne, bought it, bought it, soaked the handkerchief and taped it under his desk. 
And so, you know, when Mr. Davis would come in the building, you could smell the cologne before you'd see him. And so all day, the guy was like freaking out because he kept thinking that Al was going to come down the hallway and they, they got him for almost a full day. Do you have any crazy, funny uh, Al Davis stories or Raider stories that you, one parting story you wouldn't mind sharing with us? I mean, I got a thousand of them. I mean, we could take a whole pod- podcast on them. I mean, you know, at, Mr. D was always, you know, he was, he was uniquely different. He was, you know, you could smell him coming. I mean, what was the cologne, by the way? Do you remember the name of it? It was Canoe. It was Canoe. In fact, they talk about the Sopranos. You know, Olivia and Uncle Junior are sitting there, and Olivia says, you smell, you smell like a French whore. And, and Junior says, what? It's Canoe. Johnny yes. Canoe. I, I'm re-watching The Sopranos right now with my girlfriend. She's a Jersey Italian uh, girl. You love her. Yeah. Uh, we're, we yeah. just watched that episode. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Johnny wore Canoe. I think it was Canoe. But anyway, whenever I smelled it on Saturday, I, I used to tell my kids they would be playing in the facility, messing around, my two boys. And I'd like, get up in my office because he's here. I smell him. He's here. Get- <laughs> That's uh, fantastic. The cologne was always there. And, you know, I mean, look, he 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 did the same things pretty much every day. He loved ball. He loved football. It was his passion. Man, he was, he was great. And I got to live in the Bay Area and, and hear stories about him. And I worked at uh, Millsaps College with Aaron Pelch and Rich Gangarello, who were, I think they were uh, – assistant QCs or whatever. And they told some stories. He actually passed away the morning. Uh, it was a Saturday morning. Well, that's when the news broke and we sat and they told stories, but at our team, our team meal before we went and played uh, on the road in Tennessee and what a character and coach. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. I could talk to you all day. I'm sitting here just interviewing you. Just like this guy, just reading your book and talking to you. I mean, I I'm, I could talk to you for an entire week. The stories, the insight that you have, it's just, and it, and it just comes so second nature. To, I mean, again, it's what you've done for 35 years. But as somebody who's a football guy, I'd like to think of myself as a football guy and a football junkie. Um, getting to talk to you is really an honor. And I really appreciate you coming on. And I appreciate you being so honest. I really just do. No, that's the only way I can live my life. So Thanks for having me. I hope I helped and wish you the best. Absolutely. You were great. Have a happy holiday. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast with Michael Lombardi. I had a great time talking to him. He was very generous with his time, and I loved listening to him talk about football. Also, thank you for listening to the show this year. I know this year has been hell, and I hope that this show in some small part put a smile on your face or a nugget or two in your brain to help you with coaching your team. And if you didn't get to coach this year, hopefully it can help you in 2021. Make sure you follow me at Coach Vass's show's account at MDGA Podcast. Check out patreon.com slash coachvass as well as the redesigned website, coachfast.com. Speaking of coachfast.com, make sure you check out the store, coachfast.com slash store to see the brand new items that we have in. The first round of orders I've already gotten out and I'm enjoying seeing those tweets. I myself bought like seven or eight different hats and I'm, uh, I'm really excited about wearing those out and about. Spread the message of what we're trying to do. Also check out the CoachTube course. Go to the show notes, click the link, or you can go to coachfast.com on the front page. You'll see the link course. Thank you to Huddle and CoachTube for being great sponsors this year and sticking with the show. 
after all the COVID-related craziness. Subscribe, rate, and review the show. And as always, don't forget, quarterback can't see with tears in his eyes.